God chose Israel to show his power to the world. And God chose Moses to show his power to Israel. And God chose a bush to show his power to Moses. And the first thing he did in the life of the chosen one was setting him on fire. The bush was on fire because it is being used by God to show his power to Moses. And Moses was on fire because God was using him to show his power to Israel. And Israel was and still is burning because God is using Israel to show his power to the world. And that's what we essentially saw last week. And we also noticed the fact that Jesus Christ is the burning bush of the New Testament. In the Garden of Gethsemane, at the, when he experienced the ultimate agony of humanity and his sweat turned into blood, he was on fire and he was being on the fire. But the nature of the fire that God sets is that it is not going to consume you. It is not going to devour you, but it is going to purify you. It is going to refine you and it is going to to mold you into a powerful weapon in the hand of God. And which is what ensues in the following chapter of uh, Exodus. And, uh, and today, the title of the sermon is Signs and Wonders. Okay? Something you've been waiting for. Signs and Wonders. Before, I, uh, uh, before we read the scripture, I wanted to say I got a lot of emails about uh, the boy in the blue shirt. And also, and I kept saying, and, uh, you know, people were specific, you always refer to your book, but you never mention the name of the book. We are trying to get it. Just please say the name. And I have a mental block to say, you know, very often I've seen the pastors, you know, use the platform as a way to promote merchandises <laughs> and the books. And I mean, I'm not saying that there is anything wrong with that, but I have a mental block to talk about my book from the, from the platform. Uh, but anyway, I, I might one day. Um, I've written a couple of them, but um, so if you go outside, there's a newcomer desk. If you are a newcomer, uh, they will give you a free copy. My publisher sent me some free copies of the book. So if you are a newcomer, that particular book I refer to will be given to you as a, free, uh, as a free copy. But if you are not a newcomer, then you have to go to Amazon or wherever you buy book, and they will give you what the book is about. There's a card, okay? So anyway, that's all I'm going to say right now. Um, would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Two scriptures again, first from Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform the signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson, how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. 
Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start my sermon by telling you a, a sacrilegious story. I'm not sure this is the kind of story you should say, you should be saying in a church. I'm going to say it anyway. I don't remember who wrote it. I read it a long time ago. I Googled all over to find and attribute the credit to that particular person. I don't know. I can't I can find that story again, but I remember reading it, my goodness, 20 or 30 years ago. So in this story, Jesus comes back to Palestine three years after his ascension. Okay? Jesus was here. He uh, he taught and he died and he resurrected and in 40 days he ascended to heaven and in three years he comes back again to Palestine in this fictional, in the work of imagination of this writer. So he, Jesus came back and he walks through the, the streets of Palestine and he gets mugged. Okay? Somebody pickpocketed him and you know, ran away with his wallet and Jesus chased him and grabbed his wallet back, and he looked at the guy, and Jesus said, I know you. Do I know you? He said, yes, of course you know me. I am the paralytic. You know, you healed me, because, you know, I was, I was that person by the poolside waiting for that water to be, you know, you know, the miracle story, and then you came along, and you healed me. Now, I don't know what to do with my life. I was there for 30 odd years and people were giving me money. I don't know how to make money. Now, I have feet. I don't know. I'm not trained to do anything. So anyway, this is the only thing I know. I go and, and rob people. I, I make my living by thievery. That's what I do. So then Jesus walks along and he sees a man sexually assaulting another woman and and he, you know, Jesus goes and rescues this woman, and then he looks at the man and says, I know you, yes. He was the blind man Jesus healed. And he said, I had no problem with lust before because I didn't know any of this. I was a blind man. But now I have eyes and I see, and I am tempted by everything around me. Anyway, he goes further, and you see, he sees a woman. It's a widow from Nain, and uh, she is crying out in the street, and if you know the story, she is the one, and Jesus resurrected her son from the dead, and, but he, she tells the story, and the son, whom Jesus gave life back, ended up becoming a drug addict, and he became, you know, he turned the house into brothel and kicked 
this poor woman out. Anyway, you know where the story is going, right? Essentially, all these things Jesus did turned out to have a negative consequence. That's why I said it's a sacrilegious story, and it is, it is not true. It is a work of fiction, but it has a good moral. See, a miracle becomes a miracle based on our response to it. Not all the supernatural events are miracles. If you harden your heart against a miracle, then that miracle can become a plague. You can turn a miracle into a plague by the stubbornness of your heart. Now, in the next episode of the Exodus story, if you have been following along, you see 10 supernatural events. 10 supernatural events. But we don't call them miracles, do we? We call them plagues. Plagues. You remember the 10 plagues? One, turning water into blood. Frogs, lice, flies, livestock, pestilence, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the killing of the firstborn. And you know how the story evolved. In the last week, the last week we saw, Moses was empowered by God himself to go and talk to Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, Moses thought, okay, I'm going to make this happen. And Moses goes and everything backfires, and Pharaoh hardens his heart against the Lord's commandment, and then the supernatural events occur one after the other, and they become plagues. And at the end, you see... Pharaoh let the people go with the, with, the, with the murder of the firstborn, the last plague, and then again Pharaoh changes his heart, actually, and then he follows them along, and then the, another big miracle happens. The Red Sea parts, and the Israelites go, and the, the Egyptian army drowns in the, in the same Red Sea. You know, this is the episode we just saw. We, we are just, just going through, right? Now, that kind of brings a question of what exactly is a miracle? Because when you see all of this, you know, there is a, all these plagues have, uh, we try to particularly, if you live in the Western world, which we all are, you know, we try to fit these miracles or plagues into some kind of a scientific rationalist framework and try to explain this away, don't we? If you watch Hollywood movies and some of the new ones that are coming along have very scientific, pseudo-scientific explanations to it. They desperately try to explain away this to say that this was some kind of natural event. You know, if you saw the, see the other movie, Exodus, The Garden Kings, then they had Ridley Scott, the director, a great, one of the greatest directors of Hollywood, desperately trying to show that this is not exactly like a miracle as you think. It's a very natural event. Actually, he gets is from seminarians. We do this in seminary too, okay? So don't blame Hollywood for this. We teach them how to do it. Now, I mean, the explanations 
could be as much as, you know, it's a, it was a volcanic eruption that happened or red algae infestation in the water uh, to tidal waves and all this kind of explanations Hollywood and the seminarians give. And, you know, like my professor, I mentioned the PhD in half, uh, Old Testament from Harvard University, right? And that's what we do. And I have done that too in the sense in that kind of setting to speculate on how this could have happened through natural uh, causes. But even then, it's a miracle, and I still remember there's this story where uh, a pastor, a progressive pastor was preaching, and he was explaining this Red Sea miracle didn't really happen. Uh, he was saying, and this is one theory, because when we say Red Sea, that's not how it is written in the original manuscript. You can read it as the Sea of Reeds. That's, that's the original translation. We assume it was Red Sea. Actually, it is Reed Sea, okay? So they would say that it was not Red Sea parting. It was a, it was a small area in the eastern delta of Nile where there are full of reeds. And normally there is only like a knee uh, deep water. But then there is this phenomena, natural phenomena called wind set down, which means that the wind, you know, gushing wind will happen to 60 miles per hour or plus. And when that happens, the, you know, water will part from, you know, kind of knee deep to ankle deep. And it's a natural phenomenon. It can happen in that part of the world. That's what happened. It's not a miracle. And, and the pastor was preaching uh, this very progressive kind of sermon. So it's no miracle. It's no miracle. Then there's a good old woman stood up in the, in the, in the pew uh, and said, praise the Lord for this miracle. And then the pastor said, lady, didn't you hear that I was just saying that it's not a miracle? You know, it was only needy water. You know, it was not really parting. Then she said, Pastor, I was praising God for the miracle that my God could drown the mighty Egyptian army in knee-deep water or, in, or, a, or an ankle-deep water. Now, if that is a bigger miracle than parting the Red Sea and uh, getting these Israelites go. My God could drown the entire Egyptian army in the, in the, in the ankle-deep water. See? There is, <laughs> there is no way you can get away from this. You either believe it or you don't believe it. That's fine. If you don't believe it, that's fine. But if you don't believe it, like I always say, you might be wasting your time in a church. Because this is the place where supernatural can happen, will happen, because we believe in a transcendent God. Right? And then again, I, I wanted to clarify, this again goes back to what exactly is a miracle? When we say, what is a miracle, right? It's not always supernatural events. For uh, Sir Colin Humphrey, who was a professor of uh, material science at Oxford University, uh, actually did some study on miracles. And he said there are two kinds of miracles. One he calls a first-order miracle, which is essentially uh, the natural law, God or whatever the supernatural power is going to defy the natural law in which this universe operates. The first order miracles will be, for example, virgin birth, virgin birth of Jesus. You either believe it or not because it has to be a supernatural event. God coming to this world, he will pick and choose how he wants to come. The medical doctors can never ever explain that because that doesn't happen. 
Yeah, but, but that's a first order miracle or the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, you can speculate on, you know, there are, there are different ways to speculate on it. But ultimately, we have to believe that first order miracles are, are, are natural law kind of stops. But the second order miracles are natural occurrences or they're the happening of this can be explained by natural law or natural phenomena. But the timing of that and the combination of these different events achieving, coming together to achieve at a specific time and place to accomplish something bigger than that becomes a miracle in itself. See, when, uh, when people say, Pastor Matthew, what do you mean you believe in miracles? What do you mean you have witnessed uh, miracles? What I really mean is that there are so many things in my life I cannot explain without God. There are so many incidents that has happened in our life, in, in, in Joanne and my life, which the only plausible explanation is God. Now that doesn't mean that we are walking on water every day, right? <laughs> it, it is not that kind of supernatural I'm talking about. I have witnessed some of them, to be honest. I've been in different parts of the world. But the point I'm trying to make is, when we say miracle, it is a phenomenon that can be explained. The only plausible explanation is God, even though each event in that phenomenon can be very different uh, and can be explained by natural law. I badly want to give an example. I didn't script this, but this morning I thought I'll share one of that, which probably involves, not probably, which involves all of you. I haven't edited this in my mind, so I might be divulging some confidential information. I don't care at this point, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> now, some of you know about, you know, when I did my first uh, fireside chat with Joanne and just before our official appointment as a senior pastor, I, I explained part of the stories where uh, I, I said no to this position at least a couple times when it came about through normal channels and things happened, things changed. Uh, I was afraid of taking this position. I didn't want this position. I didn't need this position. This was not in the card. I wanted to go to Hollywood and make movies. That's why I'm here. So I didn't want to, but this is anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> being candid with you. But, <laughs> but, uh, but then, then there was this last year, this time, there was this there was this, somewhere around this time last year, it came to a point that, that I had to at least consider this. So I had this meeting with the church chair, Dan Crichton, and SPSC chair, Ella Lau, and we were the, down at the corner bakery. We have this conversation. Uh, and, and that's the first time I kind of expressed that. I said, okay, you know what? I am going to be, I am willing to be considered as a candidate for this process so that, you know, you can put me on that, you know, I'll be one of the candidates you will consider. And we ma I made the statement, Dan had a very busy day, so she was going, uh, he, he, sorry, he took, uh, he took off, and then Ella and I was left at the corner bakery, and then Ella said, let's pray, Matthew, so, you know. So Ella said, oh, sure, so Ella started praying, and then I bowed my head, and just before she started praying, she, she, you know, she lifted her head up, and she said, Matthew, by the way, I want to tell you something. If you accept this position, if you, if you are the chosen candidate, 
you have to have a long time commitment. <laughs> you should be here. Normally, a senior pastor is expected to be here at least for 10 years. Okay? And then she started praying. And I, I, I said something joke. I, I, I joked something. Oh, well, you might want to fire me even before that or something like that. You know, and, and I just joked. And then she started praying. Um, and the moment she started praying, this thought came to me. Because as most of you know that we are Canadian citizens. And I was here on a student visa. Then I had a work permit. And my work permit has to be renewed every year. And we never applied for a green card for a long time. Because we didn't. this was not the plan for us to live here. So we just applied for a green card in 2020. Uh, and, uh, and, and we are from, you know, even though I'm a Canadian citizen, I'm originally born in India. And if you know anything about the immigration system, if you are born in India or China, you will be at the very bottom of the list because there are so many, so many people from that country supplying, and you won't be considered anytime soon. You're talking about 10 to 15 years minimum, but thankfully, I'm a religious worker. That means I can skip the line a little bit. Anyway, the point is that I remember my lawyer, the last conversation I had with my lawyer, and she said, Pastor Matthew, first of all, this is 2020, and the government at that time is not very pro-immigration. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you may not be really, you know, this is, this is not the best time to apply for a green card. We are going to apply for it anyway. And the second thing, the, a month after we, apply, we applied for immigration, the pandemic hit. All the offices were down, right? Like, you know, all the, you know, the immigration office, everything was, you know, even otherwise it was delayed anyway. And the last conversation I had with my lawyer, who is actually well, this nice young lady from Ohio, and she's a pastor's daughter. She really likes me. She does this job at a very cheap price for me because she knows where I'm coming from. Anyway, but she said, Pastor Matthew, I just want you to know that the best possible scenario for us is that in around three to four years, you might get a letter from them asking for something called RFE, which is meant Request for Evidence. When you get that, that's normally the first thing you get. And then you had to, uh, we had to give all this documentation, whatever they ask for. And then they might take another year to respond to you and finally give you a green card if, you, if they choose to do, which I'm not very sure particularly where the, the government is going and uh, the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. So she said, the last conversation, she said, we are looking at 2024 or 2025, you might get a green card if stars align that way. And then one thing she said, Pastor Matthew, don't take any long-term commitment. <laughs> that's the first thing she, that's the, that was the last conversation. And that was the exact same word Ella said before she started praying. And she is praying, I'm not listening, and I'm thinking about all of this, right? Obviously, God is listening, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, and Ella keeps praying like she is in a Billy Graham crusade or something. She keeps <laughs> praying, and I'm thinking all of this, and I said, oh, okay, I have to say that to her because in case they select me as the senior pastor, and then the government decide not to give me a green card, then I'll go back to Canada, and then I'll have to do Zooming every Sunday. Your senior pastor had to Zoom in <laughs> Canada. So, so I have to say this to Ella, you know, right, at, right when she finishes the, her prayer, but but then again, I know the moment I say it, my candidacy gets canceled because nobody in the right sense of my frame of main mind will consider me for that position. 
you know, who is not uh, an American citizen or, you know, who doesn't have a green card. So I'm thinking all of this and I said, oh, good, oh, good. This is a confirmation I wanted. I didn't want this anyway, so I'm going to tell Ella everything will be over. I can go back to whatever normal is, right? So I'm thinking all of this. Ella is still praying, <laughs> you know, and then my phone rings. So I just, it's a, it's a, it's a silence mode, I just, but I, it, it vibrates. I just silenced it again because, you know, I'm just pretending as I'm, 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 I'm praying, right? <laughs> so, so I, okay, so then, you know, it's silence, but then again, the phone rings again. Now I am panicking. Normally, if there's only one person who calls me twice, which is Joanne. So maybe Joanne has some emergency. She's trying to reach me. So I'm, I'm like, again, I'm like praying, and then I'm just looking. At the, who is that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is the pastor who is going to bring a culture of prayer to Lake Avenue Church, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm looking at the, at the phone like this, and it says Debbie Lee, who is my lawyer from Ohio. And it's all happening in a matter of three minutes. So I'm like, oh my goodness, who is this? Uh, why is she calling me? Because she never calls me. It's normally emails that comes along, you know. She doesn't have time to talk and, you know, lawyers. So it, uh, the communication is that way. So I silenced it again, and I thought, okay, maybe the, I had to call her back before I say something to Ella. So Ella finishes her prayer, and I said, okay, Ella, yeah, we'll talk about it later. You know, I, I may need to rethink. And anyway, so she goes, and then I called Debbie. Debbie, what, what happened? And then she says, Deb, Debbie says, Pastor Matthew, are you sitting down? And I said, yes, I am in my car, but it is parked. <laughs> and are they going to deport me? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> and then she says, Pastor Matthew, your green card just came through. I got, uh, I got an email from, so it's not even a year into it. It's only a few months into this application. With whatever we talk about that particular administration, with whatever we talk about the pandemic, in the middle of this, he said, what do you mean, Debbie, the Green Guard came, the RFE? Because that's the first step, request for evidence. Then only we submit some of the other documents. She said, Pastor Matthew, something like this has never happened in my career. They send an email saying that this green card is approved and is starting right away, right from now. And this is something you can corroborate with uh, my telephone record and Ella's schedule and Dan's schedule. So sometime I think, did it really happen or I just made it up? So I look at the phone just to make sure because the, the exact timing. Now what I'm saying is, the point I'm trying to say is, by the way, I, never, I didn't disclose this to the search committee until they chose me. Because I didn't want them to, you know, I, I don't want, you know, because if, if I say some of these things, it will have an added pressure on them. So I, I chose not to disclose it to the committee. The point I'm trying to make is none of these events I mentioned are not supernatural in itself. It might have happened many times in the history of immigration. There is one uh, immigration officer just pulled up the application. Oh, this guy looks nice, and maybe I'll put him through. Maybe I don't, I don't know. Immigration officers have that kind of power, right? And, and so, so I don't think any of this 
in, in of itself is anything supernatural. None of it defied natural law. None of it defied the governmental rules. But all of this coming aligned together in a matter of three minutes to four minutes of Ella's prayer. And it happened at that specific time, in that specific moment, to give me that exact confirmation that I needed. And that's for something like that? The only plausible explanation I have is God. Yeah, so anyway, so. Good, anyway, it didn't go as bad as I thought, but I just wanted you to know that. There are so many incidents in our life, in, you know, Joanne and our life, that God has taken us through. That's sometimes, that's why I get excited when I speak from here. And many people say, Pastor Matthew, can you slow down? We can't hear anything. But when I start speaking, I get excited because this is real stuff. This is not something some professors taught me in the seminary. This is something I live in my life on an everyday basis. Do you know? So the miracles are possible, but the stubbornness of our heart cannot receive it. And we turn that into plague. But now, since we are in the scripture... There is, a, there is an elephant in the room because it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? Now that's a big controversy. Many people say that. What do you mean? Like you know, God himself hardened Pharaoh's heart and you know, God almost used Pharaoh as a puppet without a free will or something like that. That's the way it is written because it says, a God says, I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servant. Now, you know, I don't know if I have time to explain all of this, but let me read a couple verses right before that. This is chapter 10, 1, that is what we read. And, but if you go right two verses before that, I'm going to give you two other verses. 9.34 and then 9.35, then we come to 10.1, okay? So 9.34 says this, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, sorry, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Verse 35, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then comes to verse 10, uh, 10 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Did you see there are three verses? 9.34 says, Pharaoh sinned again and hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the next verse, 9.35 says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't know who did what, but it happened. And then the third verse, which is 10.1, the action shifts from Pharaoh to God, where God says, I have hardened his heart. Now, I sit there and wonder, who did what here? Because one verse says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then another verse says, God hardened his heart. It cannot be true at the same time. Who is the culprit here, right? Now, this is something which we would call a theological interpretation of history. These are three literary expressions of the same truth. 
Okay? It is one truth, but it is expressed from three different viewpoints, 934, 935, and 10.1. So what the Bible does is something called a reflective narration, because this story was written long after it actually happened. And the author of the scripture looks back and reflects on what happened from a theological standpoint, and he realizes all these things that Pharaoh did eventually turned out to be something really, really good, even though he didn't feel that way at the time, because he had the luxury of revisiting this event, and he says that even though Pharaoh did these bad things, even though he acted, he sinned, and he rebelled against God and he hardened his heart. I have a God who can turn these bad things into good so the action is attributed to God. Even though Pharaoh thought he is doing a bad thing, it is actually my God using that bad thing to create something good. So the, he puts, the author puts the God in the driver's seat per se. That's what we call a theological interpretation of history. It is not, you know, there is a difference between a literary, literal fact and literary truth. A literal fact, and, but the literary truth as an interpretation of the literal fact. That's why in seminaries they teach us all these critical methodologies. We do text criticism, we do redaction criticism, we do form criticism. I would love to talk to you about all of this to interpret these words, but you have to pay me more for that, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. We don't have time. <laughs> we don't have time. The point of the story is that it is the act of sin that hardened his heart. It is, that's why Pharaoh confesses. In other words, if you read, Pharaoh confesses. So if it is God who is committing the action, he doesn't have to confess. Pharaoh knows that it is the act of sin, that, rebel, that act of rebellion that is hardening his heart. And God is using his, the hard, his hardened heart to perform another miracle and another miracle and to show his power to the world. It is always our act of rebellion that comes in the way between God and his miracles in our life. You know, it is like when the sunlight hits on wax, it melts, W-A-X, wax, okay? I know a problem with W and V, so I'm going to. So when sunlight, when sunlight hits wax, it is going to melt. It is going to soften the wax. But if the sunlight falls on clay, it is going to harden it. And you cannot blame sunlight for that because sunlight does what the sunlight does to everybody. But it is the disposition of the wax or the clay that determines whether it is going to harden or soften. Right? God is same for everybody. God has the act of mercy for Israelites and the Egyptians and the black and the whites and the Republicans and the Democrats. It doesn't matter. God doesn't have any partiality, but God is the ultimate sunlight that gives light and life to all of us. But it is our act of rebellion. It is the disposition whether the, our heart is made of wax or clay. That's going to decide the destiny of this miracle. That's going to decide the consequence of this miracle. And in the gospel story, there is this verse that baffles me. Mark chapter 6, verse 5 says, 
Mark chapter 6, verse 5. And he could, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Jesus could not. The word is so powerful. I would have edited it out if I was the editor of the Bible. Because it almost tells us as if Jesus was incapacitated. Jesus, it almost reads like he wanted to do a miracle, but he could not do because of their unbelief, because of the hardened heart. No matter what he does, they say, oh, he did that using the demonic king, Beelzebub. So it doesn't matter the miracle is going to happen. Whatever miracle he does, they are going to turn it into a plague because of their framework is the way it's completely messed up. And that's what's happening to the world today. And that's what I believe. God is not really giving us a miracle because of his compassion for us. Because he knows that if he gives us a miracle, our framework has been so spoiled, so messed up, that we will turn the miracle God gives us into a plague. That doesn't often happen in Africa. That doesn't often happen in India. That's why you have more probably to witness a supernatural event in some of these countries because they have a different framework to look at what we call miracles or what we call supernatural events. But unfortunately, in the Western world, we, including the seminaries, have been so convoluted <laughs> with this new paradigm. So it doesn't matter what God is going to do supernatural event, we will make a plague out of it. That's why I believe out of his mercy for us, he is not going to give us any, or he is not giving us a supernatural event. Now, close in closing, I read the second verse where, I'll read that again. There are only two places Jesus was asked to perform miracles. Jesus was specifically asked to perform miracles. Actually, they call it signs. The Jews call a, a miracle a sign because they believe that a supernatural event has to point to something to become a miracle. Just because something happens supernaturally, that doesn't become a miracle. So they use the word signs, okay? That's very interesting. And in 1 Corinthians, actually, Paul says that Jews seek signs. Jews look for signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. So Jews always look for signs, not miracles, okay? So this is what they say. This is the verse I read, Matthew chapter 12, 38 to 40. I'll read that again. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Right? You know what happened to Jonah, right? Jonah was in the belly of the, bay, of the sea monster for three days and three nights, and that's the story Jesus is referring to. Now there is another verse where John chapter 2, there is another occasion they ask for a sign. So this is what John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 says this. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing all these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on this. But the, did you notice that when Jesus was asked to perform a sign, when Jesus was asked to perform a miracle, he said, I'm going to give you two of them. One, Jonah the prophet, why, like he was in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights. Second, I will do a promissory miracle where if you destroy this building, I will build it back in three days. And then we know he was talking about his body. Essentially, what it says is that the only sign Jesus is performing or God is performing in the world is the death and resurrection of his only begotten son. Jesus came to perform the ultimate miracle of salvation. All other miracles we call should be pointing to that one miracle, the ultimate miracle that happened on the cross of Christ, where God himself came down and died for our sins and resurrected on the third day, just like the Jonah the prophet, just like God, Jesus' promise of building the temple back in three days. So the point is, ultimately, our calling is to live out at that miracle in this world. We are all fortunate, we are all blessed to be part of that miracle of salvation. And if you have not enjoyed and experienced that miracle, then any other miracle you will become part of will mean nothing to you. If you haven't accepted Jesus as your personal savior, if you haven't experienced what happened on the cross on your own personal level, anything, any miracle, any signs, and any performance I do from here will mean nothing to you, will not matter to you. Because the ultimate miracle, the ultimate sign is that happened on the cross of Calvary, where God sent his only begotten son to rescue us from our damnation, our, our depravity, and where he, was the, uh, he gave us the ultimate miracle of salvation. The calling to all of us, are you going to harden your heart against this miracle? Are you going to be like Pharaoh? See, a sign can point either to salvation or to destruction. But here, you are given a sign. You have to choose. <laughs> here is a sign. It is either going to point you to salvation or destruction. Here is a wonder. It is either going to become a miracle or a plague. It is for you to decide. It is your heart, whether it is going to be wax or whether it's going to be clay. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and I'm not going to do like this like a crusade, but if you haven't experienced what I'm talking about, I would really like you to say a prayer with me as I'm going to pray. Would you soften your heart to invite Jesus into your heart? See, the whole world is looking for miracles in the stage and the TV screens, and, uh, but you know, the true miracle the world is looking for is sitting in this pew. If you all live out your salvation, if you live out the true miracle, then all we need in terms of advertising is that white cross that is hanging there. 
That will bring people here. You don't need the best preacher in town. You don't need the best audiovisual graphics and all that, which is all good. But if we all live out our salvation, we become the miracle that God is looking for, the world is looking for. And I'm inviting you to that miracle. Let's say a prayer. Father God, this is the ultimate encounter as we look at the cross and we come to the foot of the cross where the salvation, the miracle of salvation you have called us to become part of. Lord, I open my rebellious heart. There is darkness, there is brokenness inside, but there is nothing that cannot be cleansed by the precious blood of Jesus. So I open my heart and receive you into my life. Lord, I would like to experience this true miracle. I want to become a sign that points people to salvation. I want to become a wonder that becomes a miracle and pray that you will take my life and mold it and shape it into a powerful weapon in your hand. In Jesus' name.